Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number two of the Jimmy Tingle Show. I am Jimmy, and thank you all so much for joining us today. Today's theme in the first half of the show will be remembering Archbishop Desmond Tutu. I had the supreme honor of emceeing and performing at a fundraiser here in Boston for an AIDS benefit in 2007. A gentleman called me completely out of the blue, Mr. Stuart Ting Chong, who you'll be meeting shortly, called me out of the blue and asked me if I would consider being the MC and performer for this AIDS benefit with Archbishop Desmond Tutu. So obviously I was blown away by the opportunity to perform and share the stage with the uh, Nobel Peace Prize winner, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And as a token of their appreciation, the organization, and Stuart in particular, sat my wife and I directly next to him during dinner before the show started. So it was so cool sitting next to him. He was so down to earth, so happy, so upbeat, considering all the things he had been through. He was not bitter. He was not angry. He was just happy and upbeat, and it seemed to me to be just really thrilled to be there, and was very grateful for the people of Boston coming together for this benefit. So I got to sit next to him, and I'm, I'm asking him about Mandela, I'm asking him about the situation in South Africa, I'm asking him about the situation in America, and it was just wonderful to speak with them. And then I had to figure out, okay, what kind of material am I going to do that Archbishop Desmond Tutu will find amusing? So at the time, airport security was you know, all the rage because of the tragedy of 9-11, and it was very strict, and obviously he's a world traveler. My job is to keep the show moving, introduce people, and eventually introduce Archbishop Desmond Tutu as the keynote speaker. But while I'm doing the comedy portion of it, I'm saying, folks, can you believe airport security? Can you believe the questions they ask us? Did anybody give you anything to bring onto the plane? Huh? Don't look away. Look at me. All right, don't go anywhere. I got another question. Did you pack your bags yourself? Huh? Don't look away. Look at me. Did you? Did you pack them yourself? I'm thinking to myself, no, I didn't pack them myself. A stranger, a, a total stranger packed them. I could not believe the young man knew exactly what to bring. Obviously, always answer the questions in airport security seriously. But in my mind as a comic, I'm thinking, did these questions ever catch anybody? Ever? Did anybody ever say, oh, 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 wait a second, wait one second. Now that you mention it, last night, about 11, 11 11.15, I'm getting ready to turn in. The doorbell rings, and there stood a man I never met before. He says to me, I heard you're flying out in the morning. Why, why, yes, I am. Will you carry this on the plane for me? Carry this on the plane for you? I don't even know you. What are you going to do for me? Oh, I can pack your bags. So I'm doing this material on stage, and I can hear Archbishop Desmond Tutu cackling up a storm in the audience. He loved it because obviously he's, he's flying all over the world, so he could really identify with it. And one of the things that I appreciated about him, he had a great sense of humor. Despite all the things that he had been through, he's in the audience. He's laughing up a storm. He's having a great time. His speech was very upbeat. And he talked about the gospel, and he talked about the people who are stricken with any kind of disease are really Jesus Christ in a very distressing disguise. And how we treat those people is how we, we would treat Jesus if he were here today. As the famous quote from the gospel, as you do to the least of these, you do unto me. So it's a very uplifting presentation. 
He galvanized everybody. Everybody in the audience was in awe of that he was actually there. And after he spoke, I got to talk to him and asked him to sign a book for me. And I had been carrying this book around for years. I got it in the early 90s. It's called A Testament of Hope. And it is a collection of the essays and all the speeches and essays of Martin Luther King Jr. And it is dedicated to Archbishop Desmond Tutu and the freedom struggle in South Africa. And there is a quote in here from Archbishop Desmond Tutu, and I thought, how cool would it be if he were to sign this book, which he did. He signed the book, writes, God bless you, Desmond Tutu, September 2007. And it was just such an honor to meet him and to have him do that. And then after the show, after he signed the book, we all get on the elevator to go upstairs you know, to our hotel rooms. And my wife and I get on, and we bring our suitcases on, and he gets on, he, and he brings his suitcases on, and he looks at me, and he looks at my bags, and he looks at me, and he goes, did you pack your bag yourself? Did you? Did you pack your bag yourself? And everybody in the elevator cracked up laughing because they had all been in the show, and we rode the elevator up to the, the eighth floor where he was getting off. And the door opened, and Archbishop Desmond Tutu just disappeared into history, down the hall and into history. And it was a wonderful experience that I wanted to share with you folks tonight. And one of the things that I wanted to share with you in particular was I was so excited that I got to share the stage with this gentleman. I uh, had asked Stuart, who we're going to meet momentarily, would Archbishop be kind enough to write a quote for me? You know, for my resume, my bio, it helps you with credibility for other organizations. And so about a week later, I got an email from Archbishop Desmond Tutu as a quote that I could use in my resume. Dear Jimmy, thank you so much for your performance and hosting the benefit last week. You were really great. I really enjoyed some of your jokes. (laughs) Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Rest in peace and power, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And please welcome, ladies and gentlemen, the man who made that encounter and really made that benefit such a success and reached out to me initially. I met him in 2007. We've become good friends since. He was on the communications team for Archbishop Desmond Tutu and the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa. Please welcome to the show the one and only, in the flesh, Mr. Stuart Ting Chong. Hello, Stuart. Welcome to the show. Hey, Jimmy, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. And I hope that story brought back some pleasant memories. It certainly did. (laughs) I'm very sorry for your loss. It was a terrible loss for the whole world when the Archbishop passed away a few weeks ago. But as you know, the legacy that he left behind was truly remarkable. Really, truly a historic figure who had provided, uh, encouraged, and promoted and actually enacted lasting change, not only in South Africa, but in the entire world. When did you first meet the Archbishop, and what was your position then? I started working for the Archbishop in 1987. I was accepted to study for the priesthood, and at that time, it was during the apartheid era, where the media in South Africa were owned by the South African government and controlled by the South African government. So they use that as a, as a source of misinformation, not unlike uh, what's happening in this country with certain uh, news agencies right now. There was a team set up funded by a church in 
New York and set up to actually provide a private communications network for Southern Africa, which covered Mozambique, Namibia, South Africa, Swaziland, and Lesotho. And I was responsible for setting up that network so that when the Archbishop issued a statement, the churches within Southern Africa would have the original text and not read it and perhaps misconstrued by inaccurate media reports. So there was deliberate misinformation and miscommunication to the general public about what the Archbishop's words actually were during his whole tenure as bishop and then archbishop? Yes. I mean, in particular, since his call for sanctions against South Africa at the time, you know, calling for boycotts of trade and sports. And so that was something that obviously they wanted to discredit what he was calling for. It just speaks to the importance of media and the importance of getting your message out. If you don't have a way to get your message out unedited in an authentic fashion, People only know what they're going to hear on state-run television. Is, was that the case at that time? Well, absolutely. And, and I mean, it's evidenced even in the U.S. today how people hear what they want to hear on television and on the news from some stations and believe that that's the truth. This is now the late 80s. He won the Nobel Prize in 1984. You joined the team in 1987. Tell me about the climate of the tenuous security climate around you, the Archbishop, the anti-apartheid freedom fighters. What was it like being with him on a day-to-day basis? You know, at the time, we were, all of us who were involved in the anti-apartheid movement, and in particular, working for somebody like the Archbishop, we Personal safety was almost uh, something that we were aware of, but when there's a greater cause, it's almost secondary. For an example, I have a brother who lives in the same town that I never visited. And one day he said, why don't you come around anymore? And I said to him, I I just can't involve you just by pure association, I don't want to put you in danger. Where we were checking our vehicles in the first thing in the morning, when we went to bed, we would look outside, are there any vehicles that are parked there that that we don't recognize? And so that was how we were operating heightened security. He did not have personal security. And so essentially staff were the people who looked out for him. When you said you didn't want to meet your brother, let's just say you met your brother and the security forces found out about it or the authorities found out about it. What might be the uh, ramifications of that for your brother and for you? I think just a higher level of scrutiny. I mean, our our phones were tapped uh, very definitely. There were threats mainly to the Archbishop where 
there was a a monkey fetus that got hung on the gate outside his his home, his his official residence. You know, writing scrawled on the walls. It wasn't just the government. There were, I think, forces within communities that that felt that the archbishop was a a real threat to South Africa. Uh, remembering that white dominance was essentially key to conservatives. And when you said that your personal safety was secondary to the cause, what was so important about the cause for you as a native South African that you would literally risk your your life for? I think when you realize the injustices and the oppression caused by apartheid, it becomes greater. I think when when we realized that the, the philosophy, the African philosophy of Ubuntu, where we are intertwined with each other's lives, that if I'm hurting or if you hurting, I hurt as well because what you feel impacts me. The, the drive and the sentiment in Ubuntu it's so strong in, in Africa. Being able to speak out and care for each other is paramount. It brings to mind the famous uh, words of Martin Luther King that we're all, I'm, I'm just paraphrasing, we're all united in a common garment of destiny, that what affects one affects the other. How much of an influence do you think was Martin Luther King to Archbishop Desmond Tutu and to the nonviolent approach in the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa? The movement in South Africa was really based on, and the archbishops as well, is on liberation theology, Mm -hmm. where it is not just okay to be on your knees praying to a God to change things, that the power to change things is within us. And to tie in with that is, is the archbishop's deep belief that Christians don't have a monopoly on God, that we are made, all of us, regardless of culture, of religion, we are made in the image and likeness of God. And therefore, our brethren in, in the Muslim and Jewish communities are to be protected and supported as they should be supporting people of other cultures and religions as well. Interesting, very universal approach to uh, human rights. I know you initially were studying to be a priest. I know you never actually went into the priesthood. You were never ordained. But do you think that your work in the anti-apartheid movement was a equally important calling or as a higher calling in some respects? And are there any regrets about your work at at that time and and working hand-in-hand with the archbishop? Not at all. I do not regret one day of working for him and working against an unjust system. I think we are all priests. Mm. I think the only difference between a lay person and a priest is that officially we, we cannot offer up the sacraments, but we are all priests and we all have a ministry, whatever that is. I wish that you didn't say you couldn't offer up the sacraments because I was thinking maybe you could hear my confession after this interview. I think you would be a good person to talk to. Just one-on-one, 
not not for the podcast, not for the show, but just a little, you know, just a little intimacy there. Moving forward, what do you think the most profound experience you had was given that that time and your experience there? I think realizing that the Archbishop, while he was an amazing speaker and could motivate people, all of that strength came from within through contemplative prayer. He would spend hours, he would dedicate his Friday to a quiet day and just being in prayer, getting up at four o'clock in the morning to pray. First and foremost, he was he was a prayerful man. It's something that I've not quite been able to get to. <laughs> four o'clock is very early. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, to spend uh, a day fasting and, and praying. I mean, that was his Fridays. Wow. And during the rest of the week, he would start quite early in the morning and go often to the end of the day. What was that like? And, and what condition was he in when he would come home after a, a day of campaigning or speaking or whatever he was doing? His daily routine would be four o'clock in the morning, time in prayer, and then he'd go out for a jog. Really? Absolutely. And, and you know, in in colder weather, he'd have his treadmill that he'd go on. And then his day would start, you know, depending on what the demands were for the day and what engagements he had. And especially during the time of protests, it would really be drop whatever you're doing and, and go out to try and mediate or at least control, try and control crowds who were really frustrated and angry and confrontational when when the police were there, you know, and, and that could be a powder keg just waiting to go off. And that was one of the roles the Archbishop played was to actually just go and try and mediate and get the crowd to be less volatile at his own personal safety. So every day you folks would go out with him to these situations. No one knew how it was going to end. Nobody knew that, oh, Mandela will be released and he'll be elected president and people will get to vote and South Africa will be welcomed into the family of nations. Nobody knew that that was going to happen. Nobody knew it was going to be successful. So every day was your whole communication team on the same page spiritually, finding courage from your religious faith? Yes. Every day we would have Eucharist. We would have his, his official home, which is Bishop's Court in Cape Town. There is a chapel and all the staff would gather and we would have a, a Eucharist service to start our day every single day. And I imagine there were times during the day you would say to yourself, well, I got communion today, so whatever happens is okay. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have those moments? We, we, we hope so. I mean, certainly the situations we were in was, was very tense. And, you know, we would either experience tear gassing. There were times where priests with their collars on including women priests, would get whipped with rawhide whips. 
that was one thing about the apartheid government. They didn't discriminate when it came to violence. <laughs> you know, they would have dogs set on them. Priests were, were victims. And I'm not taking away the tremendous courage that the people had in terms of protesting. They were the ones out every single day putting their lives really on the line. I don't want to take away from what the black and colored, colored is an acceptable term in South Africa for people of mixed race. The non-white community and some of the white community were, were involved as well in these protests. So it was really a South Africa as it should have been protesting against an unjust law. How important was the international pressure that came in from the boycotts in terms of changing things relatively peacefully, ultimately, in, in the country? Boycotts and sanctions played a, a tremendous role. And those who opposed the call for sanctions and boycotts would say, but it's impacting the people of South Africa. And most of the blacks would respond by saying, we've got nothing to lose. And some countries were, were definitely more progressive and advanced than others. Some of the companies in the US were very slow to, to take on the cause. Some of the previous administrations of the USA were, were still supporting the South African government. The other big emphasis was on sports boycotts, mm -hmm. where, you know, South Africa is, if you look at the news, it's soccer and rugby uh, and cricket. And when countries basically said, you are not welcome to, to participate in an international match, or countries refused to go to South Africa and refused to play in South Africa, that was more where the South African community would feel the isolation of boycotts. And so they would be taking a harder look at themselves. Is that the point? Absolutely. You know, why would other countries enforce these rules? What are we doing wrong? One of the things I will never forget is, is of a priest who was a victim of a parcel bomb lost both hands and lost an eye. A parcel bomb? It was sent to his office or his home and, and he opened it up and the, the bomb went off and lost both hands and an eye. He was told by somebody, well, I didn't realize, uh, a South African, I didn't realize the impact of apartheid. And his comment was, what country were you living in? I mean, you know, apartheid was so blatant that, that the excuse of, I didn't know what the effects were, is just not a valid excuse. How long did you live there? Were you born in South Africa? I was born in South Africa. I, I remained in South Africa until 99 when, when I left to be with my wife in the USA. For those who are not aware, I was classified as non-white, so I did not have voting rights. The only people that could vote were the white community, and so I couldn't go to a white school. I, I couldn't pursue what I wanted to do at a university, which was become a 
a veterinarian because the university that offered that degree was a whites-only university. I voted for the first time in 94 when I was 35 years old. So you were raised there, born and raised, and you weren't allowed to vote until you were 35 years old. From an American perspective, that's pretty incredible. And tell us about your, your wife and uh, mixed race. Your wife is Caucasian. Is that correct? Yes, she's Armenian. So yes, Caucasian. I came across on, on what is called a, a fiancé visa. I had 90 days to marry <laughs> from the moment I came through customs and immigration. And so we married in Hingham by the Archbishop. First of all, that marriage would have been illegal in South Africa, correct? Well, not just marriage. In, in, in the apartheid era, even if I went out with a white woman, I could get arrested. So you met where you were outside of South Africa. You met at the airport, I think you told me? <laughs> we met at JFK. J uh, that's a great meeting place. That's like a big pickup place. I don't know if you knew that, Stuart, but JFK Airport's like a huge pickup place. <laughs> who needs who needs the online uh, dating right. <laughs> services when you when you can just hang out at the at JFK? <laughs> <laughs> right. And so when you got married, obviously you obviously hit it off very well, and you're still together. But the Archbishop came from South Africa to Hingham, Massachusetts, to perform the ceremony. Is that right? At that time, he was a, a visiting lecturer at Emory. So he was in the U.S., but he did travel to Massachusetts to conduct our, our wedding. Okay, so he was stationed at Emory University in the United States. Is that in Georgia? Yes. Okay, and then he came up to Hingham to perform the service. And what was that like, having a Nobel Peace Prize winner perform the, the uh, marital service for you and your wife? Well, it was, it was funny because I was just, reminiscing with the priest at the time of the church. My wife isn't a churchgoer, and she had to do all of the arrangements. Here's this woman out of the blue calling up this priest in Hingham and saying, we'd like to get married in your church. We don't actually attend your church. Also, we don't want you to marry us because we've got another priest coming to marry us. <laughs> um, you know, and, and, and so I asked him, you know, what did you think? And he said, well, I just kind of went along with it to see how it would end up. My wife did say to him that the priest who would marry us was the archbishop. And, and even then he kind of took that with a pinch of salt. Other than the priest and our immediate families, we didn't actually share that the archbishop was going to be there. He was involved with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission at the time. I think we would have been devastated if anything had to have happened to him while he was with us. We were able to get to state police, plainclothes state police, to accompany him throughout his stay here in Massachusetts. Stuart, it's great to talk to you today. It's a, just a, a wonderful story. It certainly gives me hope about the future. Everybody thinks the time they're living in is the worst ever, but clearly you must have thought that back in the 80s, and 
90s in, in South Africa, but it has changed for the better, which is remarkable and so hopeful. What would your advice be to people in terms of keeping that legacy alive and doing what they can? Thank you, Jimmy. It's a good way to, I think, conclude because I wrote a piece for the Friday before the Archbishop's funeral. The Episcopal Church at the time, I I visited the church where I got married and the Archbishop was there. At noon, the churches rang the bells. They would toll the bells every one ring, one toll every few seconds. So it was a very mournful ringing of of the bell, signifying a, a significant death in the community. And I wrote this after I spent time just in thoughtful prayer and meditation myself, which is unusual for me. And if you don't mind, I'm going to read this so I don't mess up the <laughs> what I'm saying. Please do. I could so easily repeat words already spoken more eloquently by others, but what I know of him is that words were meaningless unless there was an action that supported their intent. I'm not a holy person and have no skills to offer, you might say. And I can hear the archer's response. Do your little bit of good wherever you are. It is those little bits of good put together that overwhelm the world. We can absolutely do good in the world, but why not start in your own part of the world first. Pick up that piece of trash that somebody else has tossed aside and do good for the environment and conservation of wildlife. Reach out to somebody in need. We are all made for goodness, love and compassion, says the Archbishop. Our lives are transformed so much as the world is when we live with these beliefs. Get involved in your communities and correct the injustices that you've ignored by thinking somebody else is better equipped than I am to deal with that. Volunteer your time to help organizations in their mission and become the person that we know we all want to be. So I think in a way that is how to keep the Archbishop alive is through our own actions and deeds and words. Thank you so much, Stuart. It's, it's advice that everybody can put into practice. It's not that hard to do. So many of our listeners are already doing that. I know you're already doing that in your own life. One of the things with this podcast and this show we hope to do, there'll always be calls to action. I know that on February 2nd, you had mentioned at the church on Tremont Street in Boston, Massachusetts, there'll be a service a memorial service at six o'clock for the Archbishop, and it will also be live streamed. Is that correct? It'll be live streamed, and the information can be found on the cathedral's website. St. Paul's Episcopal Cathedral on, on Tremont Street in Boston, six o'clock, February 2nd. You can show up in person, or you can watch it on live stream on the web. Coincidentally, it's 2 2. The date, 2-2-2022. Archbishop Tutu being memorialized on 2-2-2022 at the St. Paul's Cathedral on Tremont Street in Boston. Are you going to be there, Stuart? Yes, I will. I've, I've actually been asked to speak as well. Oh, great. Great. Well, I look forward to hearing your words there. Thank you so much for taking the time today. 
to help us remember and shed light on this wonderful man, a prophet of our generation. So thank you so much, Stuart. I will see you soon. I'll see you live stream because the organization for today's podcast that we're helping is Metro West Legal Services, who help people who don't have the means to hire legal defense to help them with housing and education and healthcare and all the day-to-day challenges that people have, regardless of income level, and it's even harder when the income level is not there. Thank you so much, Metro West Legal Services. In the spirit of Archbishop Desmond Tutu, we'll be working for you as well. Thank you, Stuart. I hope to see you on the second. Thank you, Jimmy. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the show. Our next guest, I am so honored to have her on the show today. She's the executive director of Metro West Legal Services. Her name is Betsy Soleil. And Betsy, I want to know, you do great work at Metro West Legal Services. You've been there for 13 years. How did you rise to the level of executive director of Metro West Legal Services? Well, uh, thanks for having me, Jimmy. I've actually been at Metro West for 33 years. 33. I already made a mistake. I can't believe it. (laughs) (laughs) I started here right out of law school. I've been here my whole career, and I started as a staff attorney representing senior citizens and then worked my way into being the supervising attorney for the elder and benefits unit. And then 13 years ago, I became the executive director. Okay. And you're working with civil legal aid. Now, what exactly is that? And how is that different from the public perception of legal aid? Well, civil legal aid is sort of the uh, counterpart to public defenders or CPCS attorneys in Massachusetts. A lot of people have the misconception that they are similar in that if you are an indigent or poor criminal defendant, you have a right to an attorney. And in civil legal aid, although you're dealing with a lot of life and death issues, if you're poor, you don't have a right to an attorney. And so that's the big difference that sometimes people get confused about. Wow, that's very enlightening. I had no idea that that was the case. Is there a a movement, or are you among the people who are advocating to make civil legal aid a right, just like for a criminal defendant? Yeah, it's interesting you should say that, because there is a real movement for what they're calling right to counsel in the Mm -hmm. civil context. They call it sort of civil Gideon, because Gideon versus Wainwright was the Supreme Court case that established a right to an attorney if you were a poor criminal defendant. There is a right, there is a movement for right to counsel in certain areas, such as evictions, domestic violence cases, and some others where, although it's not your liberty being taken away from you in that you could end up um, incarcerated, there are some really basic rights, a right to have a roof over your head, a right to be safe and have your children be safe from abuse or neglect. Um, And so there is a a movement and there are some bills pending in the legislature around a right to counsel and eviction action. So, but like anything, it's going to be a process and it's taking a long time to make that a reality. Well, let me tell you something, Betsy Soleil. When this podcast hits the general public, the movement (laughs) will go to another level. Excellent. That's the tingle difference. (laughs) All right. Well, I'm ready. Let's do it. 
one thing about this pandemic, and since we're talking about legal aid and civil legal aid, the idea of being able to communicate with somebody, to navigate whatever system it is, whether it's unemployment insurance, whether in your case it's housing and just basic questions. I mean, I have a master's degree. I had to apply for the PPP loans. I wanted to talk to somebody to help me (laughs) check the right box, fill out the right form correctly. I did it with a small business association. I did it with SCORE. And this is just a common sense, essential service that people need. And like I said, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, I admit. But even though I have a a master's degree, and I was having all kinds of problems with it. So if I'm having problems with it, I imagine people who might have maybe a high school education would have an even more difficult time doing that. And that's kind of what you're doing? Yeah, I mean, you make a good point. And we've heard that from people like in this pandemic and when the recession hit in 2008, saying similar things to you. You know, I'm a highly educated person or a well-educated person, and I can't figure out this government bureaucracy that I have to go through to get unemployment benefits or to achieve some other goal that they're looking for. So when you think about our clients who are marginalized and impoverished, they might have a limited education. They might not speak English. They might have mental health issues or other issues that make it more difficult for them to navigate these systems. And so it can be very hard for anybody who's not familiar with the system to know how to approach it and how to navigate it successfully. Mm -hmm. And so in terms of the services that you're offering people, what are the categories that you're offering civil legal aid in? We have priority areas because as I always tell people, like in Metro West's area, we have over 40,000 people who would be eligible for our services if they were to ask for them in terms of their financial eligibility. And we have 18 lawyers. So do the math. It doesn't really work so well. So so our priority areas are housing, helping people who are being evicted to stay in their homes or people who are facing foreclosure to prevent the foreclosure. So there's the housing bucket. That's the number one requested service. Domestic violence, people who are victims of domestic violence and who are trying to get out of that situation who have children to help them to get the protection from abuse, to be able to leave their abusers and to be able to get appropriate custody, visitation, child support and variety of orders so that they can sort of start anew out of that situation. Do a lot of work with folks in the immigration realm, victims of domestic violence, as well as many unaccompanied minors, especially over the last you know, number of recent four or five years to help them if they are eligible for some sort of legal status based upon their victimization, help them in that process to apply for whether it be asylum, whether it be various visas that they might be eligible for if if they are victims of crime or victims of abuse. We do a lot of work in the government benefits realm for people who are looking for government benefits, either if they're being denied them or terminated from them. It's things like food stamps, unemployment benefits, cash assistance, uh, social security, Medicaid or mass health, all these sort of real fundamental things. And we do a lot of work in the education realm as well, representing the parents of kids with special needs who are not getting what they need in their school setting to help them achieve their best and 
and highest achievement level based on whatever disabilities or challenges they have. And then we also do some work in the consumer realm around consumer debt, people that might need assistance with bankruptcy or debt collection issues. So it's a wide variety of different areas. And what keeps you going, Betsy? I mean, 33 years in the position with the challenge that we're having now, maybe more so than ever with COVID, what keeps you going? What gets you up in the morning? Is it me, the podcast? Is this the motivation? (laughs) Well, that's obviously the first thing. But the other thing that really (laughs) keeps me going, it feels good when you go home at the end of the day and you say, I think I made a difference in somebody's life today. And I think no two days are the same. I often say the stories that our clients come in with and the challenges, you can't make this stuff up. This is real life. But if we're not there to help them and give them a voice and give them access to the justice system, there's not going to be anybody else to do it. That's what keeps me rolling. Well, I look forward to rolling with you on February 2nd. And I just want to invite the audience that there is a link in the chat if you want to register to attend the event. It's only $35, and you can donate more that night if you want to, but it's only $35. And if you can't attend the event, there's also a link there where you can just donate of whatever amount you can afford. It all goes to the same place, Metro West Legal Services. They're clearly doing fantastic work here in the Commonwealth, and I really look forward to February 2nd. February 2nd, I'm going to be the MC which is the master of ceremonies. For those of you not in the business, the (laughs) MC is the master of ceremonies, ladies and gentlemen. I will be the master of ceremonies. I will also be the auctioneer or, quote, fund a need person where we ask people if they can donate and we put a link right in the chat and people can donate whatever they can. And uh, also I'll be performing that night some comedy, albeit on Zoom, but it's always great to connect with people because they're all there and they're all on the same page, and everybody's pulling in the same direction. And in the spirit of the previous interview, with the legacy of Archbishop Desmond Tutu, and what can people do, this is what we can do. Thanks so much, Betsy. Great to see you. Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks for having me. Of course.